Welcome to the Macro View, episode 19. You're listening to the number one daily podcast focused on spreading the logic of liberty. I'm your host, Andrew Smith. Jobs, jobs, jobs. Jobs at the expense of wealth. Jobs at the expense of abundance. Jobs at the expense of consumer prices. Jobs at the expense of productivity. Jobs at the expense of freedom. Hell, jobs we can point to at the expense of jobs that we can't. President-elect Donald Trump swooped in and to grant a measly $7 million tax incentive via his vice president's current existing power as the still-acting governor of the state of Indiana to a giant manufacturing conglomerate, United Technologies, that happened to be uh, moving a furnace and air conditioning plant to Mexico to save $56 million a year and announced it and it happened to be caught on camera by one of their employees and became kind of a viral video. And he then went on to congratulate himself and send a threat to any company thinking of offshoring jobs, which really begged the question to me, what else was said? And what were the true details of this deal? And so it turns out that there's a couple things that you need to know. A lot of people probably listening to me, my, my listeners are pre- pretty informed they probably already know, but basically the carrier plant is, is already moved and is still moving most of the jobs to Mexico. There's going to be about 800 jobs that were going to be eliminated that are now not going to be eliminated yet. And so what was done and what was saved is really still kind of, to me, I'm, I'm still trying to figure it out, I guess, you know. The government of Indiana decided to play favorites, grant a one-time tax break applied to one company to keep some jobs. And as people can tell from my satirical opening statements about jobs, I'm not a big fan of the jobs at any expense mentality. It's a mentality that has allowed politicians to get away with the most egregious economic interventions in history. And on episode 16, we kind of already discussed corporate subsidies and the less productive jobs that continue to exist because of them and their devastating effect on the overall economy. But tonight I really want to focus on some of the fallacies uh, behind the jobs at any expense mentality, which namely is the zero sum game fallacy and the free trade protectionist philosophy that results. And I should say the, the zero game zero sum game fallacy and free trade, and as a result of the zero-sum fallacy, the, the protectionist philosophy that that, that comes into uh, you know, into popular opinion uh, circles. And to debunk the fallacy, I'm going to spend quite a bit of time tonight reading what is still probably the greatest short essay ever written on economic theory, still to this day. And probably, in in terms of short essays, and probably the most eloquently written reducto ad absurdum ever, and that is Bastiat's Petition of the Candlemakers. And the reason why is that sometimes, you know, somebody has already just said it better than it could ever be said again. And this is one of those cases, and well, you know, why reinvent the wheel? So for those of you that have already read this, stay tuned because I will be adding some delightful commentary for you. And for those of you that haven't, 
don't worry, you know, I've got you covered, but I really do highly suggest that you go and read it anyways, and I'll make it easy for you. I'll link it to tonight's show page, which is at macroviewnews.com slash podcast slash 19, the number 19. And we're going to hop right into it here, but first, a quick commercial break. Tired of losing debates to your left-leaning friends? Tired of being stumped by the state agenda? Feel you got gypped in school? Head over to macroviewnews.com and click on the link in the top right corner titled Liberty Classroom. You'll find a treasure trove of real history and economics. With well over 100 hours of lectures from the world's most preeminent libertarian leaders, you'll get the equivalent of a PhD in libertarian thought. Courses include Austrian economics step-by-step, the history of political thought, the history of economic thought, four different U.S. history courses covering it all, a full history of Western civilization, John Maynard Keynes, his system and its fallacies, and much, much more. So head on over to macroviewnews.com and click on the link in the top right corner titled Liberty Classroom. So officially, this was actually a letter that, that Frederick Bastiat wrote to the French Parliament in 1845. And it was actually titled, From the Manufacturers of Candles, Tapers, lantern, Lanterns, Sticks, Street Lamps, Snuffers, and Extinguishers, and from the Producers of Tallow, Oil, Resin, Alcohol, and Generally Everything Connected with Lighting. And it was addressed to the Honorable Members of the Chamber of Deputies. And so Frederick Bastiat begins, gentlemen, you're on the right track. You reject abstract theories and have little regard for abundance and low prices. You concern yourself mainly with the fate of the producer. You wish to free him from foreign competition, competition, that is to reserve the domestic market for domestic industry. We come to offer you a wonderful opportunity for your, what shall we call it? Your theory No, nothing is more deceptive than theory. Your doctrine, your system, your principle, but you dislike doctrines. You have a horror of systems. As for principles, you deny that there are any political economy. Therefore, we shall call it your practice. Your practice without theory and without principle. We are suffering from the ruinous competition of a rival who apparently works under conditions so far superior to our own for the production of light that he is flooding the domestic market with it at an incredibly low price. For the moment he appears, our sales cease. All the consumers turn to him. And a branch of French industry, whose ramifications are innumerable, is all at once reduced to complete stagnation. The rival which is none other than the sun, is waging war on us so mercilessly that we suspect he is being stirred up against us by excellent diplomacy, particularly because he has, for that howdy island, a respect that he does not show for us. We ask you to be so good as to pass a law requiring the closing of all windows, dormers, skylights, inside and outside shutters, curtains, Casements, bullseyes, deadlights, and blinds, in short, all openings, holes, chinks, and fissures through which the light of the sun is wont to enter houses. To the detriment of the fair industries with which we are proud to say we have endowed the country, 
a country that cannot, without betraying ingratitude, abandon us today so equal, uh, so unequal at combat. I think that that last part. This is me talking. I think that last part. He basically takes you know, he, this 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 arrogant stance in satirical form that the candlestick makers have endowed the country, and then basically says, you know, without betray, not basically, he actually says without betraying ingratitude. Basically, without ingratitude that would be looked upon as betrayal. They have to hear him out. They have to at least hear him out and not abandon him to such an unequal combat. And regardless of how ridiculous it is, because, well, you know, it's, it's no more than ridiculous than what you're already proposing or what you're already doing if you actually follow the logic. And then he goes on to just so eloquently do just that. He satirically expands upon all the benefits before just utterly destroying the basis. So he continues, Be good enough, honorable deputies, to take our request seriously and do not reject it without at least hearing the reasons that we have to advance in its support. First, if you shut off as much as possible all access to natural light and thereby create a need for artificial light, what industry in France will not ultimately be encouraged. If France consumes more tallow, there will have to be more cattle and sheep. And consequently, we shall see an increase in cleared fields, meat, wool, leather, and especially manure, the basis of all agricultural wealth. If France consumes more oil, we shall see an expansion in the cultivation of the poppy, the olive, and the rapeseed. These rich yet soil-exhausting plants will come just at the right time to enable us to put to profitable use the increased fertility that the breeding of cattle will impart to our land. Our moors will be covered with resinous trees. Numerous swarms of bees will gather from our mountains the perfumed treasures that today waste their fragrance like the flowers from which they emanate. Thus, there is not one branch of agriculture that would not go undergo a great expansion. But he's not finished here. And you see how he, he, he just such a beautiful and eloquent way to write, laying out all of the things that they would claim in any other situation. How this protectionism would have ripple effects that would would benefit so many industries because of these new workers that need to come about and the consumption and all the value-added goods that were going and people that had to work for that. And, all, and he just points it out so beautifully. But he's not finished from here. He goes on to, to all the other industries that will benefit from a law that forces people to close up you know, what we know today as modern-day windows and not allow light in during the day. And going on, Bastiat writes, the same holds true of shipping. Thousands of vessels will engage in whaling, and in short time we shall have a fleet capable of, of upholding the honor of France and of gratifying the patriotic aspirations of the undersigned petitioners, chandlers, etc. But what shall we say of the specialties of the Parisian manufacture? Henceforth you will behold gilding, bronze, and crystal in candlesticks, in lamps, in chandeliers, in candelabra, 
sparkling and spacious emporia compared with those of today but are but stalls. There's no needy resin collector on the heights of his sand dunes, no poor miner in the depths of his black pit, who will not receive higher wages and enjoy increased prosperity. It needs but a little reflection, gentlemen, to be convinced that there is perhaps not one Frenchman from the wealthy stockholder of the Anzin Company to the humblest vendor of matches whose condition would not be improved by the success of our petition. Isn't it just so absolutely beautiful? And just the way that he writes it and, and, and lays it out as if he's coming to them in all serious, obviously jokingly, but in all seriousness, this is why not? Why Here's all the points that you've made before and why not? And then comes this. We anticipate your objections, gentlemen, but there's not a single one of them that you have not picked up from a musty old books of the advocates of free trade. We defy you to utter a word against us that will not instantly rebound against yourselves and the principle behind all your policy. Will you tell us that though we may gain by this protection, France will not gain at all because the consumer will bear the expense? We have our answer ready. You no longer have the right to invoke the interest of the consumer. You have sacrificed him whenever you have found his interest opposed to that of the producer. You have done so in order to encourage industry and to increase employment. For the same reason, you ought to do so this time too. Indeed, you yourselves have anticipated this objection. When told that the consumer has a stake in the free entry of iron, coal, sesame, wheat, textiles, yes, you reply, but the producer has a stake in their exclusion. Very well. Surely, if consumers have a stake in the admission of natural light, producers have a stake in its interdiction. But, you may say, still say, the producer and the consumer are one and the same person. If the manufacturer profits by this protection, he will make the farmer prosperous. Contrarywise, if the agriculture is prosperous, it will open markets for manufactured goods. Very well, if you grant us a monopoly over the production of light during the day, first of all, we shall buy large amounts of tallow, charcoal, oil, resin, wax, alcohol, silver, iron, bronze, and crystal to supply our industry. And moreover, we and our numerous suppliers have become rich. We'll consume a great deal and spread prosperity into all areas of domestic industry. Will you say that the light of the sun is a gratuitous gift of nature and that to reject such a gift would be to reject wealth itself under the pretext of encouraging the means of acquiring it? But if you were to take this position, you strike a mortal blow at your own policy. Remember that up to now, you have always excluded foreign goods because in proportion as they are approximate to gratuitous gifts. You have only half as good a reason for complying with the demands of other monopolists as you have for granting our petition, which is in in complete accord with your established policy. And to reject our demands precisely because they are better founded than anyone else's would be tantamount to accepting the equation positive times positive equals negative. In other words, it would be to heap absurdity upon absurdity. Isn't it, 
I love that line. Is it to heap absurdity upon absurdity such a wonderful way to describe politicians both then and still to this day? Continuing. Labor and nature collaborate in varying proportions. Depending upon the country and the climate in the production of a commodity. The part that nature contributes is always free of charge. Is the part contributed by human labor that constitutes value and is paid for? If an orange from Lisbon sells for half the price of an orange from Paris, it is because the natural heat of the sun, which is, of course, free of charge, does for the former what the latter owes to artificial heating, which necessarily has to be paid for in the market. Thus, when an orange reaches us from Portugal, one can say that it is given to us half free of charge, or in other words, at half price as compared to those from Paris. Now, it's precisely on the basis of it being semi-gratuitous, pardon the word, that you maintain it should be barred. You ask, how can French labor withstand the competition of foreign labor when the former has to do all the work, whereas the latter has to do only half, the son taking care of the rest? But if the fact that a product is half free of charge leads you to exclude it from competition, how can its being totally free of charge induce you to admit into competition? Either you're not consistent or you should, after excluding what is half free of charge as harmful to domestic industry, exclude what is totally gratuitous with all the more reason and with twice the zeal. To take another example, when a product, coal, iron, wheat, or textiles comes to us from abroad and we, when we can acquire it for less labor than if we produced it ourselves, the difference is a gratuitous gift that is conferred upon us. The size of this gift is proportionate to the extent of this difference. It is a quarter, a half, or three quarters of the value of the product if the foreigner asks of us only three quarters, one half, or one quarter as high a price. It is as complete as it can be when the donor, like the sun is providing us with light, asks nothing from us. The question, and we pose it formally, is whether what you desire for France is the benefit of consumption free of charges or the alleged advantages of onerous production. Make your choice, but be logical. For as long as you ban, as long as, as you do, foreign coal, iron, wheat, and textiles in proportion as their price approaches zero, how inconsistent it would be to admit the light of sun whose price is zero all day long. So fantastic. Sometimes, folks, you really just can't say it better. Now, having said that, I always have something to say. So while this essay is written specifically and very obviously to discuss foreign trade, it is also true of regulations. It's true of everything from minimum wage to licensing requirements, from charters, orders, and other governmental approvals that are needed to do certain types of business, to the need, it's, it's similar to the need for a giant team of lawyers to not be shut down within the first year.
none of the thousands of economic regulations, trade included, but not the only one, have roots meant to protect consumers. They are and always have been to protect producers and crony capitalists that enjoy using political connections and privileges to their competitive advantage. If you're skeptical of this, go and try to start any non-software or web app related business. And I promise you, you will have your eyes open very quickly. It becomes plain and obvious that the regulations that are supposed supposedly there to protect consumers and employees are always both at root and an end product designed to benefit the wealthy, the powerful, the well-connected, and the politically privileged. No politician is going to risk their donor base of the future wealthy, the entrepreneur, or excuse me, no politician is going to risk their donor base to the future wealthy, you know, the entrepreneurial up-and-comer with some disruptive idea that will reshape the way that producers produce and to the benefit of all consumers and thus of all society, you know, no politician is going to take that risk. And there's a number of issues that politicians will take with it. First and foremost, I mean, what a risk. If the up-and-comer steals market share, I don't like using the word steal there, but if the up-and-comer outcompetes their competitors and acquires market share from the corporate crony that helped get them elected and the up-and-comer happens to not be a fan, goodbye big money. And secondly, if the entrepreneurial up-and-comer solves a problem that the politician promised to solve but really just fucked everything up even more with regulations and interventions and subsidies and a bunch of media spin, there goes one of the promises that they can continue to make, one of the opportunities for them to drive out votes, and there goes an opportunity to point to a problem that needs solving and claim that only government can solve this. With every additional problem solved by the private market, it's not just one less problem for politicians to pitch. It exponentially grows the layer, or I should say, exponentially peels away the layers of insecurity that individuals have about free markets. It makes government just a little bit more irrelevant. My last thought for tonight, and the reason for the satirical title of the, the, the tonight's show, you know, for those of you that, that didn't get it, Adam Smith, who's sometimes looked at as the you know, founder of capitalism, and you know, dis- despite you know he's a brilliant theorist, and despite you know some of his labor theory shortcomings, and Bastiat uh, within this essay kind of adopted those, but he adopted them to prove a point. To I think it was, his essay goes a little bit deeper than just the layer of trade, but despite Adam Smith's some some of his uh you know labor theory shortcomings and the fact that you know it was kind of fuel for Marx and Marx's theory which has been proven mis- miserably wrong um especially by Bombavirk is probably the best uh the the best debunking and and just obliteration of of Marxism comes in in Bombavirk Karl Marx in the close of his system and you know Adam Smith's famous treatise 
was called Wealth of Nations, and I titled tonight's show The Jobs of Nations, is kind of satirically because, you know, it was, it was called the Wealth of Nations for a good reason. Jobs are not the ultimate goal of an econ- economy. They're, they're a means to reach an end, which is innovation and mass abundance. You know, innovation and mass abundance are the goals of a vibrant economy. Innovation and mass abundance that, co- that comes from, uh, basically, innovation and mass, abu- mass abundance, that's what lead men and mankind out of the natural state of poverty. I should say men and women and mankind out of the natural state of, state of poverty. You know, wealth is, by definition, an abundance. It can be defined in more than just material abundance, true, but it can also be defined t- to different people across different times. Wealth is not necessarily created by jobs. And I'm not going to get into the entire debunking of the labor theory right now. But in fact, quite contrary to popular belief, it is the freeing of time, the freeing up of time and the freeing up of real resources needed to produce basic necessities, which is a freedom that is created by an abundance which creates jobs to begin with. Investment, savings and investment, which I talk about on, on a couple episodes ago, lead to the ability it, – it puts, it puts some real resources aside to be consumed as time is being, t- being taken up to produce non-consumer goods, to produce value-add goods such as machinery and equipment, to make technological innovations, etc. You've got to have something for the people that are producing goods that will come into existence five, six, seven years from now, put aside. You can't just grant them new new notes or new claims to real resources and hope it all works out, which is sort of what we're going to do. I'm not going to get into business cycle theory right now, but you've got to have actual real savings. You've got to have, there has to be real resources on the market that have been produced that get put aside. That is, we do that through money so that you're not having to salt a bunch of fish and save it for years. Money solves a number of issues, including ease of storage and the elimination of, of, of problems such as rot. But you put some aside, you put some claims to real resources that have already been produced aside in order to have those real resources available to the people that are being paid to take the time to innovate and to create better solutions. The end result is that people have – there's more abundance. They're able to do more with, with, in less time. And by allowing people to spend less time gathering food or working a plot of land or knitting clothes or canning and salting meats, by freeing up the time and money in, – in, in money, like I said earlier, I mean in a sense of claims to real resources through lower prices for the masses – Opportunities to produce other goods and and services just sort of emerged into existence on the market. They weren't created by government. They were created by people who thought, "Hey, if I could do this, you know, a lot of people, you know, it's really easy. It's a lot. It's become a lot easier to farm now that we have plows. Maybe some people want, you know, maybe that I can have a bigger store and more people can come to my store. I can I can focus things more, or maybe I can spend a little bit of time." 
innovating and, and, and expanding upon the plow. And it goes all the way down the line, but you've got to have real resources put aside. Having that savings, somebody being frugal and taking that money and putting it aside and having those real resources in the future to deliver to somebody who's going to do non-consumer production that's going to do value-add work, you've got to have real savings. That created abundance through innovation, through saving, through creating innovative technologies and, and having the ability to do so. And the people that are creating them aren't starving to death because they're not producing any consumer goods that they can go and exchange yet. You've got to have real savings. You create these new technologies, new technologies come online. People are able to do more in less time. People are more productive. You end up with an abundance of goods such as agriculture and food. And then since people 90% of people don't have to farm for themselves. New opportunities come about. And, but those opportunities have to be attractive enough for you to be willing to make enough to be willing to leave your farm or leave your job, you know, at, working at the home, at, at, on your own piece of land, whether it's a farm or just a garden and, and maybe a couple of, of chickens for eggs. And, and people lived off of basic subs, you know, very basic sustenance back, back in the day. Not to get in, into economic history of America and, and what the actual standard of livings were like tonight. But in, in order to attract people off of their own plot of land and working just basically for themselves and being self-sustaining, and you had to offer a high enough wage to attract them to, to say, this is a better job for you. Lower prices do not threaten jobs. And of course, of course, when a man or a woman, especially if they have kids you know, who are depending on them, loses their job to competitive advantages of other firms or to competitive advantages of other countries that are beyond their control, it's frustrating and it's tragic. But it's not a reason to have central planning. Central planning maintains that old job. You know, it eases the pain, so to speak, but it prevents the worker from seeking more productive work that pays better and allows them to use their existing skills as well as pile on new skills. And if jobs were the only thing that mattered to create wealth and have a high standard of living, if like Keynes and Krugman suggest, you could pay people to essentially dig holes and everyone will become more wealthy. If that were true, then countries like North Korea with a 0% unemployment rate where vagrancy is a crime and there's no such thing as involuntary unemployment because they find you a job, they'd be among the wealthiest countries per capita in the world. If it were true, Maoist China, where again, not only did they find you a job, but you were assigned a job basically from birth, would have prospered. The Soviet Union would have prospered in it in its heyday. And I say heyday, you know, ironically and, and, and joking. Prison work camps would have been extremely effective. Hell, you want to follow that logic? Why educate kids? Child labor is more valuable, right? Who cares about better or more productive jobs? Just get create jobs. Some jobs. Who cares? Of course, this is nonsense. Jobs don't matter per se. 
What matters is what the job is doing and whether it is consuming more value than it produces based on the consumer's subjective preferences in the current market, which in a free society accepts competition free of government intervention, whether it's domestic or foreign or from extraterrestrial objects. A couple of final points that I want to make about Keynesian theories of unproductive labor as a way to spur economic growth during depressions and the relation to forced unproductive labor. Because I know that if there happens to be any Keynesians that for some reason are listening to this program, that they'll be huffing and puffing and saying, oh, we don't approve of unproductive slave labor. It has to be paid. And so my question to them would then be, well, doesn't maintaining a large group of forced laborers in working condition cost something or or does that cost nothing? Of of course, unless you just want them to kind of die off and starve and not be productive. Of course, it costs money. It's just it's an accounting issue at that point. You know, the money is given to the forced labor or the highly encouraged labor that's unproductive instead of the resources that the forced labor would be, according to central planners, most likely to buy, which is also, you know, kind of mixed up in their own theory. They get mixed up in their own theories when they when they start kind of talking about them being able to decide what would be good. And that's why some of the, the extreme examples are good examples of it. But, you know, of course it costs money to maintain a large group of forced laborers in working conditions. You know, you're just, you're, you're paying them directly instead of furnishing the resources for them that they would then go and, and their basic necessities that they would need to buy. And lastly, to say only during a depression or downturn indicates that it's a good thing to create greater scarcity than otherwise would exist by granting value to labor that produced scarce to paid value. You're granting claims to real apples, real rice, real homes, real cars, to people that produce nothing. This means that there's no new real money, that there's only additional claims to money. And that hurts everybody as a result. During a recession or a depression or a panic, as they used to call it before the Federal Reserve, prices come down for a reason. That reason is that artificially high prices, usually as a result of government incentivized asset and price bubbles, lead to misallocation of scarce resources leading up to the depression. And during the depression, the recession or the panic or whatever you want to call it, Markets are going through a process of clearing. They're liquidating bad debts. If you ever hear Austrian economists speak, they'll talk about market clearing and and how governments prevent markets from clearing and and the effect that it has. I'm not going to go into that tonight. But they're liquidating bad debts. The markets liquidate bad debts, including employment contracts, which are liabilities. And these bad debts were typically lent on poor judgment. They liquidate the assets of companies that have been using those, those, those assets poorly, less productively than otherwise could be. And they give those depressions, the recessions, they give discounts on those assets to prudent entrepreneurs who can turn around and now with a lower cost of capital, a much lower cost, cost of capital, and with an abundance of human capital, 
can put capital to work in ways that are sustainable and meet consumer preferences. And to say that during a depression, we should reprop up prices that were misleading before the crisis, misleading entrepreneurs to put money where it shouldn't be going, or prop up prices somewhere else to distract from the losses in the previous crisis is, as Bastiat would put it, to heap absurdity upon absurdity. That's all for tonight, folks. I hope you enjoyed the show. Don't forget to follow us on social media on Facebook. You can find our page at facebook.com slash the macro view on Twitter. You can follow me at the macro view. And if you're not listening to this on the show page, check it out. Macroviewnews.com slash podcast. Tonight's show will be the first one to pop up there. And uh, you'll be able to find a link to the petition of the candlestick makers. Also, very important. Don't forget to share the macro view with your friends and family and help me to spread the logic of liberty. Hope everybody enjoys the rest of their evening. Take care, folks. You've been listening to the macro view. Tune in tomorrow night and every weeknight at 930 p.m. Pacific time to help spread the logic of liberty.